0: and welcome to our final uh, class in the bunker uh, for uh, this series we're going to be taking a break over the summer uh, and then we're going to be back uh, the first week after labor day Uh, so have a a, have an enjoyable uh summer and uh, we'll see when you get back now in the meantime uh some things for you to uh kind of think about we've been we've been looking uh all through uh, this semester at the Old Testament, and particularly Moses, as he prepares to get the children of Israel out of Egypt and he's going to get them into the wilderness and they're parked in front of Sinai. And part of what it is that's always been a little bit of an enigma to biblical scholars is exactly what it is that they believed, what they were taught in the in the desert. Uh, how much was added later as the text was put together. During the, the Babylonian Exodus, and and exactly what it is that these ancient Hebrews uh, believed. Now, I want to start today with a curious uh, verse out of the Book of Mormon that gives us a little bit of a window into a broader understanding that that we believe that the Israelites, and before them the ancient Hebrews had of the heavens. And it comes very close to many of the things that we believe. Now, here's the verse in the Book of Mormon that we run into. Oh, how marvelous, Ammon says, are the words of the Lord. And how long does he suffer his people? Yea, and how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men. And then he says this, For they will not seek wisdom. Neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Now, what we're getting is, depending on how you look at how the Book of Mormon was written, there are those that would say that what we have with the Book of Mormon is a word-for-word account coming from the plates. Some have a belief that it was more adapted through the thoughts and minds of, of Joseph Smith as, as he was dictating uh, from, with heavenly help. But either way, we know that the, the uh, Nephites, from the brass plates, had access to the writings of ancient Israel. And we know that those that were particularly in kingly positions were able to read those and then uh, include that in their writings. And what we're getting from this verse is a little bit of a window into that ancient Israelite way of looking at things, because we're actually this is, a, this is called an echo. And this is an echo of actually Proverbs. And Proverbs is based on a belief that they had. So so follow me on this. Uh, Because this this brought some questions about they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. And they say, well, is this she literal or figurative or what is this? Well, let's go back to Proverbs and see the roots of what it is that they believed. In Proverbs 3, we get Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Proverbs has been called part of the wisdom theology. Uh, in that all that happens uh, as we're talking about all through Proverbs is this wisdom knowledge. But over and over and over we get what scholars have called lady wisdom because wisdom is always cast as female. And again, a lot of speculation. Was, was this she, lady wisdom, simply a figurative way of, of giving wisdom kind of a female bent? Or were they basing it back on something a little bit more ancient? And in reality, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the she in in the the Proverbs wisdom writings, and we get windows of it coming out of the writings in the Book of Mormon, actually goes back <coughs> to what we would call the Asherah tree. Now, the uh, Asher means happy in Hebrew the Asherah tree meaning that there was a belief and and a worship and a veneration for the Asherah and and who was she? Well, Proverbs 3 is going to tell us she, this Asherah, Asherah is a tree of life To those who lay hold of her, those who hold fast to her are called blessed. So again, because of that, there was a, we get a window, not just a belief in a tree, but the tree uh, actually resonated back to lady wisdom that was seen as the queen of heaven or the consort of God. And it becomes a little bit more uh, explicit when we get into Proverbs eight. In Proverbs eight, uh, we actually get to hear Lady Wisdom speak, and she's going to tell us some things about her. I was weaving and creating. Uh, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more in a second about weaving. The idea of spinning and weaving—that is a—it is a trait of what this queen of heaven this uh, Asherah does I was weaving and creating from everlasting from the, the beginning or wherever the earth was so she goes back uh, farther and she says when there was no depths I was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding in water so there's no depths and then later she can say when he God prepared the heavens I was there when he set the circle uh, the King James Version says the compass but it means the circle the the encompassing of uh, the the waters when he set the circle upon the face of the depth so before the depths and then the face of the depth as he's creating it she says I was there when he established the clouds above and when he strengthened the the fountains of the deep. So, no depths, on the face of the depth, he's strengthening the fountains. You get a sense, she is with him all the way through the creation. In fact, she says, I was weaving, I was creating. Uh, And and wait for a second when we talk about what the the weaving means, because it's very fascinating. Then I was by him, she says, as one brought up with him. I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before Him, yet that, that happy, the the Asherah, the ashra, uh, saying that that she was daily His delight. This person brought up uh, with Him, rejoicing. What did she rejoice in? The habitable parts of His earth, but really, where was her main joy? And my delights were with the sons of men she says so here is this lady wisdom that is with God in the beginning she is actually creating and weaving with him she's there in the depths and then most importantly she says her delight was with the sons of men well this Asherah the the queen of heaven she would be called um, was so beloved that all over Israel now you can find the what's left over of the Asherah shrines, the, the places that they would worship her, and it was believed that she was the mother of uh, Yahweh, Jehovah. Um, they would they would venerate her by worshiping. There are always two pillars out in front, uh, and the way that they would they would worship her is by bringing her cake offerings uh, we know from the refugees coming out of uh, the Babylonian destruction and by pouring wine and drink offerings down so it would cover the tops of the pillar it would cover them and that's, and they would bring it to these pillars as, a, as an offering to the Asherah shrine that would sit down inside here which was a stylized tree. Um, and, and what happened is, is that all of these shrines, we'll talk about in a second, ended up being uh, destroyed. Uh, by and large, the, the trees were destroyed out of the, those. But what did that look like in these Ashira shrines? Well, uh, Professor uh, Dan Peterson in his article on this says the menorah, the seven branch candle that stood for centuries in the temple of Jerusalem supplies an interesting parallel to all of this. Leon Varden maintains that the menorah represents a stylized almond tree. He points notably to radiant whiteness. That ought to be setting off some <laughs> uh dings in your head radiant whiteness of the almond tree that at at certain points of its life cycle and then he says Yarden also argues that the archaic Greek name of the almond tree almost certainly not a native Greek word is most likely derived from the Hebrew meaning great mother in other words, in their worshiping, they believed that they were worshiping the great mother and they had formed uh, and worshiped all uh, these almond trees, uh, and that it came out really and, and in all likelihood that's what the menorah part of what it was uh, celebrating. Now, as we're listening to the, all this description of this of this tree celebrating all of this joy and happiness and, and life. This ought to sound very, very familiar when we talk, when we talk about our own within the, the Book of Mormon, the tree of life vision. L- listen to how it's being described. And it came to pass, Lehi says, I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to do what? To make us a share, to make us happy. And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I had ever tasted. Yea, and behold, the fruit thereof was what? Well, it was white, to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, what did it do? It filled my soul with exceeding great joy. Now, interestingly enough, we know that there was an Asherah tree in the courts of uh, the temple that Lehi most certainly would have seen because he is alive um, uh, during the the great uh, King Josiah purge, shortly before the destruction of the Babylonians of Jerusalem. King Josiah becomes worried about these Asherah shrines and the worshiping of the Queen of Heaven and part of their finding whatever law it is that they found in the temple courts the the Deuteronomists underneath King Josiah went about destroying these shrines and cleansing the temple of all worship related to her. Now, in all fairness, they were also trying to wipe out Baal worship and the fertility groves that were kind of this abomination that had grown out of the worship of Asherah. And in wiping all of those out, they also uh, wiped out the, the Queen of Heaven worshiping that was going on. And so they actually go into the temple and they remove from the temple um, the brazen serpent, Moses' brazen serpent, uh, Aaron's uh, staff that had begun to bud because people were worshiping it because of their desire to worship this this tree and these things that, that, that grow. And the Josiah purge goes through and cleans all of this out, declares just one God, Jehovah, and then shortly after that destruction then comes the Babylonians they destroy the Jerusalem so the, the Israelites that are carried out of Jerusalem to Babylon now carry with them the marks of that Josiah purge and a, and a single God not a worship of, of others but interestingly enough not all of the Jews go to Babylon there's another large group of refugees and they go west towards Egypt. And Jeremiah, the prophet, is going to go in search of those refugees. And he goes to preach repentance to them and say to them, how come you guys didn't repent? Jerusalem, It's horrible. Jerusalem has been destroyed because of, of your uh, unworthiness. And what are these refugees' response? It's, it's pretty terrific. They're going to say, when we made qu- offerings to the Queen of Heaven, this is in uh, Jeremiah 44, we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no evil. But since we left off burning incense to the Queen of Heaven, we have lacked everything and been consumed by the sword and by famine. They would go on to say we baked cakes to her and we poured out drink offerings and we were safe. And their belief is that part of what happened was the Josiah purge that they think they believe brought on the Babylonian destruction. And and so what you get here is that you get this sense of what what these people the Israelites were actually believing and this very Uh, careful veneration of, in their eyes, the Queen of Heaven. Now, where else does that spread? Because when the, the Israelites come back after the Babylonian exile, they come back, there's a belief in one God, Yahweh. However, that belief in a female deity, this Underlying wisdom and strength that is in a female form. If you've ever traveled anywhere in in the Mediterranean, you find out that there's a universal belief in a divine feminine. There may be Zeus, there may be Caesar, but there's always this belief and, and, and outward humble worship of the divine feminine, for instance, in going into Ephesus, uh, you can see that you can see where the great temple of Artemis used to stand—Artemis Diana—and this is one of the this is one of the figurines that got Paul in trouble. Remember that as he brought in uh, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a fear among the people in Ephesus that their chorus trade built on these uh, uh, Artemis statues would be broken up and that they would be overthrown as as a city. But Artemis as you can see uh, has uh, multiple breasts and fertility and she was seen not just as a god of of war as you see her here but also a god of fertility because she is going to create life and, and so, if we're going to have, if we're going to live in that era, we may go to Ephesus, uh, make our trek there, buy an Artemis statue, and take it home and put it on our own little shrine, uh, wherever, wherever it is that we're going to live. Uh, you get the same feeling when you go to Athens, and, and based on the goddess Athena. and And, in, and again, a veneration of this great, Female warrior creator god that in, in whom we're going to find strength and and uh, the weaving she's going to put together life for us uh, pretty terrific even as far if we step out of out of Europe for a second and even go down into the Mesoamerica we get uh, the great creation myth of the Maya and uh, based on uh, the writings we can find in the uh, writings of Popovu. And, and Popovu talks about the creation myth of the Mayas and the heroic twins uh, that would represent uh, all of the Mayan people and their very roots. But over the uh, heroic twins is their mother. And she will bring them out of uh, Zababa, out of the, the underworld, and she is the one that's going to make sure that they live by saving them she's created their their bodies so you get again you get this sense of this divine feminine who's watching over the creation of of all things pretty fun okay now even if we go back to ephesus for a minute this is the front part of the great library of Ephesus uh it was the rival of the library of Alexandria okay and here's the veneration of all these people and and all that and right here in the corner is Sophia and Sophia is wisdom the idea being that you will go into the library and you will gain wisdom through her Now, when we look at all of this, what, is that, what does this all mean uh, to us? Well, I find it very touching that, that Lady Wisdom, especially uh, in little later Christendom, was, even, was very strongly tied uh, to weaving and to um, uh, creating uh, cloth and spinning and back to creation that we, she was creating bodies uh, and, uh, and so what you get is things like this this is St. This is Anthony in 356 A.D. almost 400 A.D. and he's writing this return my son to your first father God and to wisdom your mother wisdom summons you in her goodness saying Come to me, all of you, O foolish ones. Remember the foolishness that we're talking about? O foolish ones, that you may receive a gift, the understanding which is good and excellent. What's the gift? I am giving you, I have woven for you, a high priestly garment that is woven from every wisdom. This idea of wisdom means that wisdom is made up of many strands that are woven in over time almost like our experiences or the things that we have learned have created a cloth of our life uh, of of all the understanding and knowledge and things that we have i'm giving you a, and that that forms a priestly garment woven from every from every wisdom clothe yourself with wisdom like a robe he says put knowledge upon you like a crown and be seated upon a throne of perception from now on, my son, return to your divine nature a sense that they had that if you if you were clothed with her wisdom and didn't run from it that you would return to a more divine state again echoes of something that they believed uh, back then uh, one more on this um, and it has to do with uh, the the uh, worship of, of uh, the Virgin Mary myth. In, in some of the myths about how Mary came to be and her early life, uh, I love this one particularly. Soon they needed a curtain in the temple and found only six virgin women who were still unsullied And this could weave. It has to be a virgin woman that's going to do the weaving. What weaving? Therefore we rushed to the house of Joseph and Mary, also gave her the job. Purple curtains protect the the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. Mary is working on a vertically hanging curtain to the Holy of Holies, which protects the most holy things from unauthorized persons. So it was a belief that she was part of the weaver of the veil of the temple. And then they say and it was that Mary wove the red curtain and just when Jesus died on the cross miraculously tore in two. So in other words they were saying that the body that Jesus got from his mother was torn by the cross. And at the same time, the veil that Mary had woven was torn uh, as well. And again, it's this idea of that Mary became the embodiment of the older Lady Wisdom. Uh, and she was the embodiment of that. Okay? So, let, let me, let me uh, begin to wrap this up. So, when we start talking about Lady Wisdom and the Queen of Heaven. Obviously, this has so many echoes uh, to our own uh, Mother in Heaven. Uh, and what is it that we believe within the Church? Is this a, Is there supposed to be a hallowed hush over her? the The actual uh, the the Church essay on this says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents a heavenly father and a heavenly mother while there's not a lot of revelation this is not a heavenly hush this isn't her being covered up because her name is too sacred this is we just don't have enough information but we boldly proclaim a mother in heaven this understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God our relationship to deity and the godly potential of men and women and then they say the doctrine of a heavenly mother is a cherished and distinguished belief among Latter-day Saints we believe in that mother in heaven we believe in that lady wisdom and now we've gone to the point of saying especially for young women who are themselves trying to find their own sense of uh, wisdom and one day these women will knit bodies uh, for the children of men. Each week they're going to say, I am a beloved daughter of heavenly parents with a divine nature and eternal destiny. Brothers and sisters, we of all people understand this doctrine most I think somebody once mentioned to uh, Patrick Mason as he was trying to teach uh, about LDS theology and they were trying to say what's unique and he started to talk to them about a heavenly mother and these, these non LDS students said wait a minute you guys believe in a heavenly mother and he said yes it's one of our most cherished doctrines And they said, why aren't you talking about her more? Why? It's like you've got your best player riding the bench at game time. And he said, I don't know, but we do. (laughs) We're just not quite sure all that we can really say about her because not a lot is known. But we're going to cherish the fact that we know she's there. Brothers and sisters, within our... Within... The pages of the Old Testament, the wisdom scriptures, and in selected places in the Book of Mormon, she peeks out. She gives us a window to her, to her wisdom, to her knowledge, to her longevity, back to the creation, and that her delight is ever with the sons of men and women. I bear you my testimony that throughout the the scriptures of the Old Testament, we will find her breathing life alongside Heavenly Father and and their Son, Jesus Christ. I bear witness to them and to their reality, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.